I say often, you will never hum the sermon on the way home. Sometimes you really don't want to. But if we can bring that into our humming and singing on the way home, maybe we'll catch the whole emphasis of this series that we're doing on Ephesians. If you're a visitor among us, we are looking at Ephesians. And we are looking at Ephesians with the help of Eugene Peterson's Practice Resurrection. And you're right, Eugene Peterson, nowhere in that particular commentary mentions the Ulster Covenant. But the week um, that we've had, which, as I've said earlier, uh, uh, took a, uh, another angle for uh, Janice and I and uh, some of the congregation, um, in the midst of all of the mystery and sorrow of our week, we've also, or I've certainly been living in two things the Ulster Covenant and Ephesians chapter 2, the second half of it. I've been reading uh, history around this covenant. I suppose in some ways even sparked by David's song because the by any means in the song was something I was really quite unaware of before David wrote the song and I started to look at this covenant and started to ask questions about it. So I've been trying to catch the history of it. William Crawley's program on Thursday evening was exceptional. Get it, my player, it's on again tonight, asking many questions and bringing up many questions. And then in the midst of all that, you're trying to work your way through this reading in Ephesians chapter 2. So the Ulster Covenant, Ephesians 2, Eugene Peterson, all spinning round one through other head, as you've become aware of over these last three years. Before we start to make a lot of sense of it, can I just say that I acknowledge that 1912 is a very different place and time than 2012. I'm sure Dave does that as he wrote the song about his great-grandfather. Being aware that his great-grandfather signed this covenant, um, Dave might have asked, why was that? And in some ways, as he tried to get his head into his great-grandfather's world in the song, which he does, I think, uh, very visually and um, uh, very poetically. Uh, The truth is it was different economically. Belfast was maybe one of the great economic boom centers of the entire world. And um, one of my many ideas of a PhD in this would be how did... April the 12th that we thought about here one Sunday night just a few months ago when the Titanic sank. How did that feed in to what was signed in September 2012? How did that feed into insecurities of economics and and all kinds of other stuff? The economic situation was incredibly different. Politically, we were in days of empire, and empires used... Um, I'm not going into my own um, uh, too detailed about my thinking of what I've thought this week, but certainly used as one of the reasons for this covenant to be signed and the defense of the union to be fought for at any means. Um, I guess if you looked at it another way, you might say, how prophetic was Westminster a hundred years ago to think forward to the devolution that now is in Wales And Scotland and Northern Ireland, it almost is something very prophetic, but not felt that way by 
Dave's great-grandfather or our ancestors either, many of them. Religiously, it was very different too. Catholicism was very different. This is long before Vatican II. And Protestantism was very different too in that probably a good majority maybe of the people who signed the covenant would have been in church the Sunday before and the Sunday after and Presbyterian ministers might have been rallying them even to sign it because church and religion was different. It's certainly different now, but we live in the legacy of it. What would have happened if it hadn't been signed and pressure hadn't been put by military force under the government? Did those of us who have raged against military force or the threat of military force bringing certain people into government forget that it was the threat of military force that caused us to have Northern Ireland in the first place? And some would have us live in 1912 still and that's where my conversation was going the British Nationalist Party being part of yesterday's celebrations at Stormont and the vulgar and vile Twitter tweets from the leader of that party swearing at our Catholic brothers and sisters is part of 2012 that is maybe there because of 19 and 12. And we've got to deal with this. I think one of the great, the greatest stumbling blocks to our going forward in this country, even above, and I say this, I'm probably exaggerating it, but above sectarianism, above prejudice, is this idea that I wasn't there in 1912, so it's got nothing to do with me. I wasn't there in 1690, so it's got nothing to do with me. I wasn't there when my great-grandfather lived. It's got everything to do with me. Because you look at the genetics of that man and his partner and their parents. To think that the past has nothing to do with us or we have no part in it is very dangerous. So we need to somehow come to terms as a church in 2012, as followers of Jesus in 2012, what does this covenant mean, say? How do we critique? How do we move on? I think that David's two songs, and I've already said it, is an incredible conversation in trying to deal with that. They were uncontrived. He wrote them at different places. He never knew that I was going to ask him to sing them on the same day. Um, he never maybe thought that we would ask him to sing a song about the Ulster Covenant at all. Um, and we had no idea when those songs were being written or when I was thinking about Ephesians that this passage would come on the day that we're thinking about Ulster Covenant. But there's, there's a link here. There are two stories going on. There's this story of a particular time in our history. And there's this story going on in the history of God's salvation plan. And I think... They challenge and speak to each other as Ephesians 2 does to that covenant that we remember this weekend. As I say, the second verse end talks about these Gentiles, the non-chosen, being brought into this covenant, adopted as God's own as we've been singing in David's song on Ephesians 2. This idea that we've left our past, 
that we are now, uh, we weren't citizens with God's people, now we're citizens with God's people, that we've been grafted into this eternal covenant that God gave to Abraham and worked his way through the the Old Testament story of the plan of salvation coming its fulfillment in the Jesus who is central to this passage, central to this book, and central to our security, identity in the world that we live in. Here is a covenant, and then there's the one that we commemorate. Ephesians is about identity. We've looked at this in the last few weeks. We looked at the rewired imagination of the language and uh, what, what Paul's trying to tell the new church about how they relate to God, how they relate to one another, how they relate to the world outside. We have this rewired imagination. We have found that grace, Jonathan, last week, the, the foundation of this is not our works, but by the grace of God that he's given to us in Jesus. And that this is about, as we're coming to in this particular passage, a whole new community and kingdom. If we look at this passage, it's all about what Jesus does. He is the foundation stone of this new identity that we find when we burst through the the waters of baptism into this new forgiven and resurrected life. Verse 14, Jesus is our peace. Verse 14, Jesus made us one. Verse 14, Jesus broke down the dividing wall. Verse 15, Jesus abolished the law. Verse 15, Jesus created one humanity. Verse 15, Jesus made peace. Verse 16, Jesus reconciled. Verse 16, Jesus put to death. Verse 17, Jesus proclaimed peace. This is about God moving first, as we've thought about in some of the first sermons, as we looked at Isaiah's story, God moves, God does, God gives us new identity. We are just passive. Jonathan has been learning at the school of Eugene Peterson about verbs. And it wouldn't be a sermon in this series without mentioning verbs again. Five passive verbs in this passage. We are brought near. The Spirit gives us access. We are built upon the foundation. We are joined together. We are built together. We don't do it. It is done for us. And we respond to it. In his commentary, Peterson speaks of an ontological church. Church is not what we do. Fitzroy is not about what happened at Fitzroy Family Focus a wee while ago. Fitzroy is not about the events that we plan. Church is not about programs. Church is about what God is doing amongst his people. It starts with God. God indwells us. God sees us as a resource. Verse 10 of the passage last week. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do the good works that he planned for us to do. We're not the workmen or women. We are the workmanship. We are God at work in the world through his church that is now the people of God. And that's why every Wednesday lunchtime or most Wednesday lunchtimes when we pray in here in the parlor, we will find ourselves praying that God will not bless the things that we have planned, but that we will find the things that God has planned and become involved in those because they're already blessed. As a session when we meet, we're not trying to come up with some plan that we would take to God and say, God, do you think this would be a great idea? We're coming to try and listen 
to try and understand. And sometimes, I think many times, God speaks to his church through the conversation of his people in his church. Through our debate and our discussion and our praying, we are trying to seek what is God doing amongst us? And how does God want us to become involved in what he's doing amongst us that then becomes Fitzroy family focus, the end of the process rather than the starting point of the process. This passage tells us that our identity is tied up in who God is and what Jesus has done for us. And there is security in that. Where is our security? Is it in what we do or hang on to or fight for? Or is it in this incredible passage in Ephesians 2, the end of Ephesians 1, where we hear about Jesus, Lord of the whole universe, sitting at the right hand of the Father to become Lord for his people, the church? That's where my security is. That's where my identity is in economics. Yes, we want to fight for economics in the right kind of ways. Yes, we want to make sure that the economics of the third world changes, the developing world changes. Yes, we want to be involved in that because that's part of what God is doing in bringing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. But for our wealth and our sense of material security, our identity in flags... In religious freedom? Who dares suggest that anybody can take away our religious freedom? I'm sure the persecuted church would flag a a shout at us and say, we are free in Christ no matter how much we have suffered. And we do want to make sure they don't suffer. But their identity in Christ cannot be taken away by any military regime. So... Peterson talks a lot in this commentary about individualism. Today's title, The Brambles of Individualism. The American church, he says, is an individualist church. Here's a couple of the quotes from that. And I want us to listen to these, not just as individual individuals, but as an individual nation, an individual people, race. Let's think about it in those two kinds of ways. Peterson says, individualism is the growth-stunting, maturity-inhibiting habit of understanding growth as an isolated self-project. Individualism is selfism with a swagger. Got to swagger and I thought, he's been at band parades, this guy. Individualism is the growth-stunting, maturity-inhibiting habit of understanding growth as an isolated self-project. Individualism is selfism with a swagger. I can grow up in Christ myself, thank you very much. I don't need to go to church. I can go up the mountains and I can find God individually. I don't need to be involved with other people. The church, look what it's done. Individualism. Maybe one of the downsides of the Reformation, but I'm not going to go into that now, is this whole individualist thing that we don't need other people to be able to grow in the faith. Then he goes on. This way of thinking um, sorry let me just stop there and, and put it in the context of individualism as a nation. Our flag. 
our Union Jack, proud to fly the biggest Union Jack there had ever been at the time of the Ulster Covenant, forgot an Ulster. Do you remember the 80s? Ulster says no. Belfast says no. Ballymena said no. I always thought if I died in the 80s, would I get to the gates of heaven and it would say, heaven says no. With a big Union Jack over it. Because it seemed to me at the time that God was very much Northern Irish. And God was very much British Northern Irish. He wasn't even English Northern Irish. He was British Northern Irish and he definitely said no and he loved the Union Jack. There's an individualism about us as nations that doesn't fit into the passage in Ephesians 2 where God's part of the story at this stage is there's been this chosen people that's going to bless everybody and we'll get to there in a moment. And that that's going to sweep its way through Christ into this amazing time when the gospel of Jesus, the love of God... And the people of God will be from every nation. I've said that church is not something we do. Peterson says this. This way of thinking the church is a human activity to be measured by human expectations is pursued unthinkingly. Here's a great quote. The huge reality of God already at work in all the operations of the Trinity is left on the bench while we call time out huddled together with our heads bowed, and figure out a strategy by which we can compensate for God's regrettable retreat into invisibility. We gather together and we say, God's not really doing it here. We're a wee bit insecure about this. We've got to sort it out because the numbers are dropping and the church isn't doing so well. We better get together because God doesn't seem to be about his business and we'll sort it out for him. Have we done that? As we gathered together and thought, we need a covenant here. By any means, we've got to keep this. By any means. By gun-running German guns into Northern Ireland, I've heard in Presbyterian months to fight a British government who two years later would be at war with Germany and many of our own would die fighting against the Germans that we took the guns off to threaten the British two years before. Where was our security? Were we individualistic? Did we think God had gone from the scene? We sang, God, our hope in ages past, but seemed to fail to believe it. Let me come to the quick here. God's covenant, which we find here in Ephesians 2, which we see opened out here in Ephesians 2, was never meant to be with one people inwardly thinking about themselves, their identity, their material wealth, their religious freedom at the cost of the rest of the world. If we go back into Genesis chapter 12, we find, I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The people of God, the chosen people of God, were to bless all peoples on earth. Isaiah reminds the people of that. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. 
to the ends of the earth. Again in Isaiah, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted in my altar, for my house will be called the house of prayer for all nations. The people of God in the Old Testament sometimes, many times, got it wrong and started to look inwardly and refused to be a blessing to other nations. God is trying to Uh, not trying to, God has opened up through these walls being broken down through this peace that Jesus has brought to take the blessing from the chosen people locked in one race right to every nation of earth through what Jesus has done for us on the cross. The interesting thing about the two songs of David says one is about the streets of some locality and the other is about the cosmos and history. One is confined to our own little individualistic needs in one part of our history and the other is about God at work throughout history continuing to be at work in the history of where we live today. Those are the songs. Those are the visions. Which one is closest to Ephesians chapter 2? Trevor Morrow's biggest angst. I was reading his thoughts on the Ulster Covenant and I've heard him on this Uh, for many, many years, is that what the Ulster Covenant did in us retracting and confining ourselves to this people who became a siege mentality behind the walls and no surrender, it stopped us being a missional force across an entire island. Chris Morris, if he was here this morning, David Bruce at the Special Assembly a couple of years ago would give us the statistics of how many Presbyterians how many Christians there were right across the island at the start of the 20th century and how this particular subset of Christianity, this particular denomination of God's invisible church worldwide suddenly retreated to the northeast corner, particularly around Newton Ards, I think Chris Morris would tell us, and retracted out of many places where today we could be helping to bring Christ to what is now pretty much a secular Republic of Ireland. The fastest, the country who's losing church attendance, the fastest in Europe is our neighbour in the Republic of Ireland. Are we a help to them? Yes, we are, because many, like the John Woodsides and the Trevor Morrows, have gone and helped out with this battle to spread this great truth across our island. But so many have retracted into what the bond that David Bruce called, where we get behind our securities and become a blessing only to ourselves and not to others. This message of Ephesians is a cosmic, huge, historical message. Jesus is not the most important person In the church, Jesus is the most important person in history. Jesus is not the most important person for us who gather together in Fitzroy this morning. Jesus is the most important person for this entire city, this entire island, and the entire world. And we have got to believe in the foundation that Ephesians is built upon, which is that God is at work. He's at work because of something that's been done in time and space history, because Jesus is Lord and nothing Nothing, not even the gates of hell, will prevail against what God is doing in his world. Do we believe it? Or will we huddle together 
and say, we've got to help God out here because he seems to have left the scene. Ephesians 2. Coming to us to rewire an imagination that is such a big picture of God that we have nothing to fear, nor should we fear those things that go on around us. A sacrifice by any means, by any means. Jesus was a sacrifice by any means to reconcile, to bring peace, to tear down the walls, to build a new community where God would live by his spirit and bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Not just in our little land for our little wants and needs. Not even for our little doctrinal issues that we want to stand and fight for. But that every nation of the world would be blessed by the people of God. Are you in? Do you believe? Are you up for it? Do you know your identity? Have you got security in him? Let's write another covenant. Actually, we don't need to. Because the covenant was given to Abraham. Let's be a part of the story and the covenant that is eternal. And move forward in this island for the glory of Jesus. Let's pray. Our God, we do not know what went through the minds of our great-grandfathers and grandfathers and fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and uncles and aunts in 1912. But we pray that as we come to commemorate events, that we would not commemorate those events uncritically or take hold of what happened one time and justify things now in the light of them, but that we would bring your scriptures to bear on those events of our history and that we would try and have a conversation with your word speaking into those events that we might learn, that we might seek forgiveness and repentance, that we might learn maybe some of the good lessons of the past and that we would become part of this story of God reconciling the world to himself in Jesus but also reconciling the world to the world in Jesus. Help us to be those who stand for what Jesus died and was raised to life for. Help us to become a part of this great story, not that we would be blessed, but that we would be a blessing to the world that we live in, in Christ's name, for his sake, for his kingdom to come, we pray. Amen.